0: Well, I'm just so thankful that uh, each one of you are with us, and this morning we continue in our ongoing series, Clean Slate. We've been in this since, I believe it was just after uh, Labor Day that we began in this series, and last week one of the things we talked about was renewing your thinking and addressing uh, your mind and addressing the, what when we follow Christ, His desire to work in our minds. And this morning I'd like to continue in a bit, not not in the exact same message of part two, but really connected very much to that. And that's not only recognizing the work that God wants to do in our minds as we follow him and the renewing of our minds and addressing unhealthy thought patterns and and really the new start that he gives us. But also I believe that it goes with is not only just a, a new mindset, but it goes with a new lifestyle. One of the verses we looked at last week that I'd love for you to see for just a second is Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. If you could put that on screen, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And then verse 2 it says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will. If you look at those two verses, verse 1 talks about, it says that the true and proper worship is the, that, we are, that our lives are being changed by our hope in Jesus Christ, that he's transforming us, he's changing who we are. This is our proper worship. When we think about worship, sometimes we can, we can arrive at such a small definition of what worship is that we compartmentalize it down to what we've just done on service, here in service, uh, for about 30 minutes or so. Having someone lead us in song, having musicians play, that we can think of that as being worship. But when we look at what God defines as worship, it really is an all encompassing lifestyle. And that's what Romans chapter 1, or chapter 12, verse 1 is telling us. That it's, an, it's a lifestyle. It's an all encompassing lifestyle that your life is being changed, your, your habits are changing, how you live your life is changing. And it says, closely related to that is the renewing of our minds, the renewing of how you think, how you think about things, how you handle things. We, we talked about addressing those loose ends in your thought life last week. I want to show you another passage that helps draw, helps see this hand in hand link between uh, our mindset and our living and how both are to be a continual, uh, places of growth as we follow Jesus. And this is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17, and sometimes as you turn there, we can read some of the, the books in the, the Bible, in the New Testament specifically, we can read it and we can feel very dis- disconnected to the people that it was written to. And so sometimes it's important to, remember, to stop and remember that what we're reading was written to very real people living in real time, real culture, real world, real problems. Those living in the city of Ephesus, those who received this letter from the Apostle Paul, were living in a culture that was very ungodly. They had several temples that were built specifically for some of the the Roman deities. And in in the Roman culture, an individual could believe in any number of gods that they want— as long as they didn't believe there was only just one God. It could be anyone. So a Christian could, a Christian, the problem with Christianity in the Roman culture many times was not that they believed in a God that was not a part of the the Roman deity structure, but it was they believed that he was the only God God. And so that really, much like our world today, that there was an intolerance for any type of, of being absolute and believing in, in only one way, one truth. And so when Paul writes to the, city, the believers in the city of Ephesus, it really is very similar to the world we live in today. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, it says this, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. That you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now look in verse, if you have verse 17, if you could leave that on the screen. He, look at it. He says you must no longer live. So our lives, our actions, the choices we're making, the things that we're doing. He says you must no longer live. So there's our living as the Gentiles do or the non-believers do as those who don't know Christ do. In the futility of their thinking thinking. So do you see the connection, our living and our thinking? That they're very closely connected in our following Christ. And in the following verses, verses 18 and 19, he talks about what that mindset away from Christ looks like and how it produces a life that's away from Christ. But then jump into verse 20. Speaking to believers, writing to Christians, he says, "...that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus." You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and then listen to this, verse 23, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, again, just it's highlighted that our lifestyle and our mindset are continually to be renewed in as we follow Jesus. If you're a Christian here, then your life should be different. The different life doesn't earn right standing with God, but because of his grace being at an effect in your life that is producing a different life, that is changing who you are, it's changing how you think, it's changing the things you think about, it's changing the life you live, it's changing how you live your life, that our lives are constantly being changed and transformed and renewed. Now, when it comes to your life, I, I think it would be worth just having everyone realize this, is that God's desire is that your life is not owned by anything. His desire is that your life is not owned or dictated by anything, that you are made for him. Your life was made for him. Your desires were made for him. Who you are was made for him. And so his, God's desire and his design for your life is that you're not owned by anything. That there's not a, a craving or a longing or certain things that would dominate your mindset, that would dominate your life, that would dictate your choices, that would dictate how you spend your time, dictate how you spend your energy. God's desire is that you're not owned by anything. In Second uh, 2 Peter 2.19, he says this, he says that a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. This says, a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. God's desire is that you're not owned by anything, because anything less than God that owns or controls or dictates your life, really, you'll find it becomes a very cruel taskmaster, that it owns you, it controls you, it controls your, your thinking, it controls your craving, it controls your time, controls how you spend your life, and for us to stop and just realize that God's desire, God's intent for your life is that your life is not dictated or controlled by anything other than his spirit at work in you. Now, when I say that, I realize that in a room like this, for those listening, that, that for many individuals, their lives coming to habits and cravings and longings and lusts and things within and, and really addictions within, that for, for many who hear me say that, that your life is not, God's desire is that your life is not owned by anything, that you might hear me say that and you might find the reality of your life is very different than that declaration of what I've just said, that God's desire is that your life is not owned by anything. And so I brought a piece of paper to help you see a little bit of an illustration to understand this. So when we have this piece of paper, and I, I think I've used this example years ago um, here, but I have just a, a very plain piece of paper, no... Um, no uh, folds in it no anything on it. the only thing that's written on is I, I i left a note i said hey don't take this paper off the pulp but i need it from a message so if someone were to take a, a scrap note but there's no no folds no nothing on this piece of paper and this is really god's design how he created you he created your life without any folds without any failures without any well, he didn't he didn't want he wanted your life to be free but then as we go through life, as you go through life, you go through the challenges of life, the difficulties of life, the, the circumstances of life, just the way life has it, that something comes along and challenges you, and in some way captures your heart, captures your attention, even if it be for a moment, and, we, and it's really, it's a temptation to fold. It's a temptation to fold in how it is that God has designed you or created you. And so every temptation that comes our way, every temptation that comes your way in life is an invitation To to really settle for something that's less than what God designed desired you for, so the temptation comes to fold. But as long as we don't make the fold, make the decision to fold, then we're still good. Do you you see that? But when you and I make a decision to give in, we make the decision to fold. And to give in to something, whether it be uh, an illicit desire, whether it be sexual temptation, whether it be any number of things that would pull on you and temptations that would come. When you make the decision to give in, immediately you've created a, a crease. You've created a fold in your life where you've given in. Now what happens is in God's grace, he can come along. We ask God to forgive us, to cleanse us, to make us brand new. He can completely, he makes us, God in his grace makes it as if we've never sinned. God in His grace makes it as if you've never failed. However, because of your nature, your cravings, your desires of who you are, God in His grace makes it like we've never happened, like it's never happened. However, I, what I really believe and see and, and this is what Romans even talks about, is that because we've made a choice in our actions and our desires, we begin to train our desires that when a, when a temptation comes again, do you see where the temptation is to fold? It's very easy to fold exactly in the same place. And so many times individuals will come and they'll give in to temptation, reinforce that failure, and they'll say, well, God, forgive me, straighten me out. I want to be brand new, and he does that. And then the temptation comes again, and we, oh, we make a choice. We fold again. And we kind of just keep going through this same process. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? We go through the same cycle, this same process. And so God continues to change us and forgive us when we come with sincere repentance, sincere in, in asking God to, for, to forgive us. He offers his grace. He doesn't offer it saying, I'm only going to give it to you if you never do this again. He offers his grace unconditionally because he looks at your heart and he sees the genuineness of your desire to say, God, I don't, I don't want to settle for less than who, you've, who you are and who you've made me to be. But as life would go, sometimes we've had this, you've had this fold in your life and you realize, I need to do something. God in his grace keeps, has forgiven me, he's changed me, but I need to do something about this fold in my life, this fold in my character, this fold in who I am and allowing God to, to change and to bring transformation, to, to bring healing. But it's realizing that you and I have a part and a responsibility in that. And so what I would like to do this morning is to share with you, just like I did last week, I'd love to share with you a number of steps to put into action in your life that that I really believe begin to address the, the issue of reoccurring failure in the life of an individual. And just like I said last week, when it comes to your thinking and how you think and how you approach uh, your thought life, don't take these things that... I'm about to give you, don't take them and look at them as being kind of the silver bullets that fix all. Don't take them and and think of them as being the finish line that it solves it. Rather, think of them as being the the starting point. Think of of them as, as tools that help you pace yourself in the race and in the journey of following Jesus. But simple tools to begin to address that area where you many times give in and continue to give in and recognize that it's something that needs to be addressed. And so, the first one that I would give you this morning, and it really was the last one that I gave you last week the very first thing that I would encourage you to do if you find yourself in a place of continued, repeated failure is to get your focus on Jesus. Get your focus on Jesus. Now, I know for some, if you've grown up in church, I grew up in church. If, uh, remember when Sunday school was something that we'd, we'd get to Sunday school and then we'd, later we'd have church? There was always, and it's kind of a standing joke, I think, among many, but if you're in Sunday school and you don't know the right answer, just say Jesus and, and you're going to be good. This is not that. It's not a matter of, well, just get your, get your focus on Jesus. And I'm just trying to give you the quick, easy answer. But it's realizing that get your focus on Jesus and how crucial that is. And I think to understand how significant and how crucial it is, it comes it, to understand it. We first need to understand the importance of a different word. And that different word is the word temptation. Now, I know it'd be very easy to, to try to give you all of the, the background, the language, why, what the word temptation actually means in our world today and, and all of the meanings behind the original word. But when it comes to temptation, the easiest way to think about it is, is luring away. Just think, think of something that's luring away. And in fact, I brought an example that I think might help you in understanding temptation. And I think to, the best way to understand temptation, I brought a little miniature fishing pole and I brought a bag of bait. So let me just show you a little bit of my, my bait. I brought some, I've got some gummy worms. So I'm gonna show you what this looks like. Let's we'll see if I can do this. I may need extra hands, but let's see. So when it comes to temptation, I have a hook here. You may not be able to see it in the back, but I've got some, a gummy worm I've got a, a hook. And temptation, when it comes to temptation in our lives, this is really the, the description of what temptation is. It's luring away So, I have a fishing pole, I have a hook, and I have a gummy worm on it. And if you're anybody who's anyone who are fishermen here, anybody love to fish? We've got, I see a handful, a few hands. You're, you love to fish. You'll know that, that you have to hide the hook. You have to get the hook in there just right, um, especially depending on the type of fish that you're fishing. Because some of them are just incredibly smart; they can recognize the hook, or they'll immediately be able to see that it's there. So you have to have the hook completely hidden away. And then what you do when you go fishing, depending what type of fish you're, you're fishing for, you take it and, and you kind of just throw it in the water. And usually you'll have some other attachments on the end. You have a bobber, you have a, a spoon, you have a different other different type of lures. But you kind of just sit there and you just kind of. You dangle it in your water, and you're waiting until the fish comes and bites on it, and then there's an incredibly important thing that has to happen. When the fish bites your, your line, bites your hook, you have to you jerk on it. You have to set the hook. You set the hook in the fish's mouth so he can't get off, and most hooks have a little bit of a barb on them. I cut it off on this in case someone wanted to come and take my gummy worm, but I cut the barb off, but the, the barb kind of goes in, and then it, it gets it to a point where the, the hook won't come out, and so Many times, though, when you have this, you see the hook is completely hidden. If you are addicted to gummy worms, this might look pretty enticing to you, (laughs) right? Now, I wonder, have you ever stopped and wondered what goes through a fish's mind just before he takes the hook? Now, I'm not an expert on what fish fish think, but I would imagine that they're not sitting there thinking, well, I bet there's a hook hiding in that worm. I don't think that that's what they're thinking. In fact, I think that they're probably thinking, that looks so incredibly good, I don't think one bite's going to hook. I might not ever have this size of worm come along again to take a bite on, so I'm going to just have to chomp out on it and enjoy it. Now, I realize a gummy worm may not be the most enticing piece of bait to understand temptation, so I brought some other bait. I brought, let's see, got a dollar bill. For some, this might be what your temptation looks like, the bait that's used. It might, be, it might mean, I have a dollar bill that's here, but it might mean uh, the, the lure, the, the bait that is constantly dangling in front of you in your life, that's constantly tempting you and saying, come on, this is good enough. It's, it's, the, it's the temptation, the pull for more money. How do I make more money? How do I become self-reliant? How do I make just a little bit more that there's this constant pull, and, and for many, while you're the worm, you can look at the worm and you can think, well, that is obvious, there's a hook in there, I'm not a fish. For, for some, this might be more of what the bait looks like. The bait that hides the hook, that hides the sting, that, that ultimately tempts you and leads you away from Christ. Not, it may not, maybe it's not money. I kind of thought someone would run up here and take that off for me. Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's, let's see, what else do I have? I have a few more things in here. see if I can get this on here. For those in the cheap seats in the back, you're not going to be able to necessarily see this, but it's a car. I've got a car. It's a Hummer. Maybe the lure that is, con- the, the bait that's constantly dangling in front of you doesn't have to do with money, doesn't have to be a gummy, where maybe it's stuff. Maybe it's the accumulation of stuff, the need for more stuff, the need for just one more. Maybe it's the house, maybe it's the car, maybe it's possessions. I don't know what it is, but it's, maybe it's, it's some sort of stuff, something that just represents to you. I, just, I need that to be satisfied. I need that to be fulfilled. I need just enough of that to, to finally get me where I need to go. That's kind of the way temptation works. I brought one more thing. Let's try one more piece of bait because that didn't seem to get anybody to move. Let's see, I got one more piece of bait in here. I brought a Barbie doll. Now, I'm trying to get her on here. The, uh, I think it's funny now, and I, maybe just a side note. My, my daughter's raising four girls. I have this Barbie doll. They come with clothes painted on now. They didn't used to come with clothes painted on. And I know with my four girls raising four daughters that there seemed to be this magical pull in the room that whenever they would buy a doll, a Barbie doll, and it would go into their room, it was like a magical pull that would separate the doll from their clothes. Clothes would end up somewhere else. The doll would always end up being naked all over the floor. Sometimes I told my wife, sometimes I feel like we were running a nudist colony in their bedroom. (laughs) It was just constantly just dolls and naked. But perhaps for you, not so much the doll, but the whole appeal of the flesh. What website do you have to go to? How short does a skirt have to be? What does he have to look like? What is the bait that the enemy needs to use to swing in front of you to finally get you to get your focus off of Jesus and onto what it is that's in front of you? And see, for many of us, we la- we can laugh, we can look at these things, we can look at these examples, but you have to realize that when it comes to temptation and when it comes to the way the the hook works. The goal is never your pleasure. The, uh, the goal is never your satisfaction. In fact, your pleasure and your satisfaction is the bait on the hook. That's the bait on the hook, whatever it might look like. And the whole focus, the whole point of temptation, I've kind of tried to use a little bit of humor to help you to see it, but the whole point of temptation is to get your focus off of Jesus, is to look and realize I need something other than Jesus to fulfill me. I need something other than what God has designed, the parameters he's given me. I need something outside of what God says in order to fulfill me. And so when it comes to addressing temptation, addressing the area of the fold, the thing that continually comes at you, in order to address it properly, it's not a matter of, well, how do I get stronger at this, or how do I, get, how do I become better at my resolve? How do I become better at saying no? The first step should always be first is get your focus on Jesus. If temptation is to lead you to focus away from Jesus, then the first step should always be to get your focus back on Jesus. A verse we looked at last week, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says this, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Get your mind on Jesus. Get your focus on Jesus. That is always the best answer. And so if, if, if temptation is always trying to lead you away, the first step is get your focus on Jesus. And I would encourage you, even as I'm talking about this, and some of you are writing notes, or you might think I'm going to go listen to the podcast later. Think about your struggle that you face, the, the, the addiction, the, the, the peace that continues to own you. Think about your struggle and take this and immediately think about what does that look like? How do I personalize that into my life? What does that look like to immediately get my thoughts on Jesus? To just leave it as this idea that one day I'm going to apply is really to immediately give in to, the, to, to set yourself up to fail, so get your focus on Jesus and recognize how do I, what do I have to do to get my focus on Jesus? Is it, is it a matter of hanging a verse? Is it a matter, of what does it mean for you to get your focus on Jesus? Oftentimes in an individual, uh, gives in to sin and gives into really a reoccurring failure in their life, that they feel like God becomes so distant and so focused. And, and I really believe that this getting your focus on Jesus, not only is it to, be the, is to help strengthen you against the temptation that would come and to strengthen you against the things that would, would come against you, but I really believe that, uh, that getting your focus on Jesus is the best answer when you find that you've fallen, It's not a matter of figuring out how do I get my kind of my my track back. How do I get back on the track? Get a little bit of history behind me and not giving in again. But I really believe the first step is to get your focus on Jesus, even after you've fallen. I think sometimes when when an individual fails and and finds that it's this reoccurring failure, not once once you give in, the enemy loves whatever that that failure was. The enemy loves to come back and and then begin to hit you with condemnation, and you know you're you're not really even a Christian. No Christian would ever go back and do this again. I mean, do you really think God's waiting for you to get this figured out? Come on. Those are the lies the enemy loves to whisper into individuals' hearts and minds to discourage them. Just to con- once you've given in to continually wear you down and make you feel defeated and ashamed and broken. And so the best thing that I believe that you can do this morning, if you find yourself living in that place of shame, that place of failure, many times it's almost like there's a mental fog that settles over someone's mind. They can't be, they can't even begin, they, God feels so distant, so far away from them, so far from their failure. And many times we will picture God as being like this angry father who's sitting there with his arms crossed at a distance, thinking, I can't believe you've done this again. I need you to get up, clean yourself off, and get back into this. That's how we often picture God. But when we begin to train our mind, the moment you fail to get your eyes on Jesus, instead of picturing God like this, like, I can't believe he did it again. We need to picture him as being a loving heavenly father who's down with us, helping, trying to encourage us to pick you up, to carry you forward again. I had um, a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, just reading in the morning devotions. We usually will open up somewhere. We have a spot in scripture we'll read with our kids as they head out to the bus or head into their day. And so I grabbed my wife's Bible. My wife loves uh, the New Living Translation that I've mentioned before. Find a translation that fits with you, that helps you understand God's Word and to really apply it. She loves the New Living Translation. So I grabbed her Bible because it was the closest. And I went to Romans chapter 8 and to read this with some of my kids that were heading out the door. And after I read it, God just began to use it to challenge me and to speak to me. And specifically thinking now about this point where God many times can feel distant in our lives. And I want to read it to you. And before I go on and give you the other ones, but look at Romans chapter 8, verses 37. We're going to through 37 through, I think it's 39. It says, No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when you think about that and you think about how the enemy loves to make you feel shamed and defeated when you've given into sin, when you've given into failure, is this to recognize is the enemy wants to make you feel defeated and ashamed and broken. And so when we take this and we look at it and we measure what God's love is for us. It's to come to that realization that when you fail, yes, God, God wants you to be free of that thing that owns you, but that does not change the position of his love for you in his life, towards you, that he loves you. He wants you free. You need to move with confession and repentance, but he wants you free, and when I think about this verse, what this verse tells me is that if the enemy, if the devil had, had enough power to in some way go through all of the history and to take every bit of evil that's ever been been unleashed in humanity and to, to direct it completely towards you. And if the enemy had the way to take every demon in hell and every every power and force in hell and to empty it out and direct it towards you. And if the enemy had any way to go into heaven and to convince every single angel to join his side and to, to direct it against you, that if the enemy could exhaust all of his strength, all of his energy to get anything and everything in all creation to turn against God and to turn against you that he says that in all of that if the enemy could take everything and turn it against you that that would still fall short of separating him from God's love separating you from God's love for you just to get the picture of God's love and his grace and his goodness towards you I think the second thing that I would give you if you find yourself in a place of reoccurring failure reoccurring struggle reoccurring defeat as I, would encourage, I would encourage you, the first one is to get your focus on Jesus. The second one would be to acknowledge the reality of your struggle. Acknowledge the reality of your struggle. We live in a very ultra-sensitive culture. We don't want to offend anybody. You don't want to make anybody feel bad about anything. And many times I've sat with individuals who've been, who have lived in a cycle of sin and a cycle of failure and a cycle of addiction, a cycle of things, and they'll they'll only see themselves as being a victim. But they were a victim of the wrong choice of this, a victim of the wrong this, uh, of all number of things. Or, or even at most, they'll look at themselves and they'll think, well, I'm just, I just made one choice too many. They won't stop and own it and recognize that they are, they're living in a cycle of reoccurring failure, a cycle of sin that has to be addressed and has to be broken. And for the, the first step in addressing it is, is acknowledging that it exists. Acknowledging that it's there. Look with me, if you have your Bible, you can look with me in, in Proverbs uh, chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7, verse number 25, it's just talking about, uh, Proverbs chapter 5, 6, and 7, it's really talking a lot about uh, the lure and the pull of sin. It uses the, the example of adultery, it uses the example of sexual immorality, but you can really take it and apply it to any type of sin and, and reoccurring sin that an individual experiences or failure that happens in their life. And what I did, I went through Proverbs five, six and seven, and as I just read through it, I'm just in my own personal devotions, I read through it, I underlined every time that there was a consequence that was laid out that would come from, from saying yes to sin, I underlined it and then off to the side of it I, I wrote, I, I wrote it just in my Bible. I said, Sin is never worth it. It's a reminder that sin is never worth it. It may look good on the front end, but it's hiding the hook and sin is never worth it. And so in Proverbs chapter 7, for those who think that perhaps even this morning you find yourself being owned by a struggle, owned by something that continues to come at you, continues to call your name, continues to get you to say yes, and you look at this and, and you've not reached out for help, you've not acknowledged even the depth and the reality of the struggle that you face, and you think, I'm strong enough, I can, I can, I can have enough resolve, I can have, an, I can have enough discipline, I can deal with it this time, and that was the last time, I'm never going to give in again, and just the things that you convent, continue to convince yourself and rather than acknowledging the reality of the struggle that you're in. Proverbs chapter 7 says this, talking about the pull and the lure of sin. It says, do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims that she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Another translation says that her slain are mighty and strong. In other words, what that says is one of the largest group that sin continually conquers is those who think that they're strong enough on their own. One of the largest groups that sin continually conquers are those who think that they're strong enough on their own. That they don't need help. That they don't need someone to, they don't need to expose this weakness in their life. They think that they're strong enough to just handle it on their own. That the next time will be different. The next time I can say no. The next time I won't give in. The next time I won't look. The next time I won't click. The next time I won't do this. There's always the next time. And what this says is that those who think they're strong, that's That's really the largest group that sin conquers because really you're right where it wants you to think that you don't need help, to think that you can solve it on your own, to think that really all will be good and okay. The first step, or really the second step, I believe in in breaking free of reoccurring failures, number one is train your mind to get your, your thoughts on Jesus. Secondly, Acknowledge the reality of your struggle. Acknowledge the reality of your sin. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That God has committed Himself to forgiving sin that we come in repentance of. That if we come in repentance of sin and we confess our sin, we acknowledge it to God, it says that He stands ready to forgive. Another one, uh, reading in, in Psalm 32 uh, just on Friday reading in my devotion, Psalms 32 verse five, David is talking about his, his struggle and his sin and, and earlier he says, when I kept silent, I felt the ache within me, my, my, my body was groaning, all of the effect of this, but then verse five he says, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. But it's acknowledging it to God. As, we, as we've already looked at in this series, one of the, really the first step in, in making things right is coming in repentance and confession to God. All sin involves God. All sin always involves God and always, all sin always involves God and affects our relationship with God. And it may not stop there for some. It may mean involve others. It may involve uh, impact, the impact that it, your choices have had on others. But come to a place where you acknowledge what is going on and you begin to take steps to make it right. Third thing that I would encourage you to do. The third thing in, in dealing with reoccurring failures, so number one, get your focus on Jesus. Number two, acknowledge the reality of your struggle. Number three, create the necessary boundaries. Create the necessary boundaries. And this is really the point where if you're serious in breaking free of, your, of the cycle you live in, this is really where, where kind of the rubber meets the road. If you create the necessary boundaries, there's no boundary that's too great or too strong, or, or too, too big, too, too costly if it keeps you from going back into sin. It's kind of where you, you take your faith and you put it into action. Uh, in Romans chapter eight, I'm gonna show you Romans chapter eight, verses seven and eight. It says this, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. What this passage shows us in Romans, what Paul is talking about is he's really showing the nature of sin. The nature of sin always stands opposite of who God is. The nature of sin always stands opposite of of God's desire for you. Their sinful flesh, our sinful nature always stands opposite of God's desire for us. And so I've, I've many times, I've talked with individuals who are dealing and struggling with specifically dealing with, with sexual temptation and, and sexual sins and addictions in their life. And, and I've had individuals, I've sat with individuals and they'll, they'll tell me, they say, well, well, I, I, my prayer is, and they've brought it forward or they've been caught or they've been exposed somewhere in it. And they say, well, my prayer has been that God would take this temptation from me. And when they tell me that, I'll tell them graciously, I'll tell them to pray that God would take a tem- that temptation from you, you're really praying a prayer that can't be answered. And the reason you're praying a prayer that it can't be answered, it really anchors back into Romans chapter 8, what I just shared with you. The reason God can't answer that prayer, there's three reasons. You're praying for God to take this temptation from you. Number one, that that's not an answerable prayer because as, and I'm, talk- as I'm talking to a man, I tell him, I said, God, you're, you're, you're dealing with a a way that God has hardwired you. There's certain desires that he's created in you. The problem is that your culture teaches you to take them outside of the parameters of what what God has made them for. But you're asking God to change the desires within you that he's given you. It's just, you're taking them outside the parameters. So I said, so God's not gonna change the way he's made you by way of that being the desire that he has for you within the God-given parameters of how he's created you. Secondly, I told them the reason that, that that's not an answerable prayer is that you're asking God to change how he's hardwired you Secondly, you're, you're, that prayer would involve God changing the culture and the world in which we live. But the Bible tells us, if you look in First John chapter 2, verse 15, it says the world we, we live in, the culture we live in, stands opposite of who God is. And so, if the world and the culture stands opposite of who God is, it goes on to tell us from God's truth is that the world will continue to drift from where it's at, continually away from God. So it's identifying a culture that's drifting away from God. And then the third reason that I tell them that that prayer is not an answerable prayer that God will just remove the temptation is that the reason that that's not an answerable prayer is because, according to Romans chapter eight, the nature of sin stands against God. And so, because of those three reasons, I tell them to pray and say, God, just take away this temptation is not really an answerable prayer. Rather, we, what we need to do is we begin to need to learn to recognize and live in a greater measure of obedience and, and walking out what it is that God has called us to do. And to do that, it involves creating the necessary boundaries. And talking about creating uh, healthy boundaries uh, within your life is really in... Jesus talks about this in uh, Matthew chapter 5. Look in Matthew chapter 5 with me. He says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Verse 27... But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And what Jesus is talking about here, he's really talking about radical steps of amputation. Now he's not telling someone, go out and physically gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, cut off your leg. What he's saying is there's really no cost that's too great if it keeps you from entering into sin. And what he's saying is that if, if this edge of the stage is, is entering into sin, then he's saying, don't stand here. Put all the boundaries between you and sin so that you are standing here. He says, exhaust yourself in trying to create boundaries and barriers between you and sin. For those, I know I keep talking about those who struggle with sexual temptation, and this, what I'm sharing, fits across any number of temptations and failures that an individual deals with, but I would encourage you that there really is no cost too great, and that might mean having someone else have the, the password for your phone. That might mean having a management system that involves someone else having the password to your, to your, to your, uh, to your internet, Whatever it takes to create the proper boundaries is what it takes to then take what Jesus has said and put it into action. I think the the fourth thing quickly that I'd give you is is to practice prompt and radical obedience. Practice prompt and radical obedience. Can I just encourage you that there is nothing worth holding on to in this life if it limits your ability to follow Jesus? There is nothing worth holding on to in this life if it limits your ability your ability to follow Jesus. I really think for many Christians that the desire is for deliverance in places where God's desire is obedience. That we pray for deliverance in places of our lives when really God's looking for greater measure of obedience. To know what he expects of you and to live it out. In Philippians chapter two, verse thirteen, we spent time in Philippians uh, over the summer and in the spring. If you can put that on the, the screen, Philippians chapter two, verse thirteen: "For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to fulfill His good purpose." Says God has a part, but you have a part. It's to walk in obedience, to walk in accordance with what He desires and His design for your life. And then the last thing I'll give you, really quick, is to to refuse to go back. Refuse to go back. Forgiveness is a starting point. God's grace is a starting point in your life. It's not the finish line. It's a starting point. And as God is continually working in you and you put the boundaries in place and you recognize the behavior that needs to stop and you get your focus on Jesus and and you begin to practice obedience in in those things and and putting them away, it's recognizing that once Jesus sets you free, don't go back. When When individuals continually encounter Jesus in the Gospels, one of the things he continually told them after healing them, after forgiving them, he says, leave your life of sin. Leave your life of sin. He says, don't go back. Don't go back. God's desire is that we walk in a greater measure of obedience and a greater measure uh, of, who, of his desires for our life. One of my, my favorite books is The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges, and I've, I've read out of it several times uh, before. Jerry Bridges passed away. I believe it was this, this past year. I uh, was with the navigators, and he says this. Look, at, listen to this. He says the Apostle John said, "My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin." Talking about First John chapter one. Or, sorry, First John chapter two, verse one. The whole purpose of John's letter, he says, is that we not sin. One day, as I was studying this chapter, I realized that my personal life subjective regarding holiness was less than that of John's. He was saying, in effect, make it your aim not to sin. As I thought about this, I realized that deep within my heart, my real aim was not to sin very much. I found it difficult to say, yes, Lord, from here on, I will make it my aim not to sin. I realized God was calling me that day to a deeper level of commitment to holiness than I had previously been willing to make. Can you imagine a soldier going into battle with the aim of not getting hit very much? That very suggestion is ridiculous. His aim is not to get hit at all. Yet if we have not made a commitment to holiness without exception, we are like a soldier going into battle with the aim of not getting hit very much. We can be sure that that if if that is our aim, we will be hit. Not with bullets, but with temptation over and over and over again. So God's desire for your life, God's desire for my life, is that as he continues to change us, continues to renew us, continues to free us from the ongoing effect of sin in our life, that when he does that, that we make a choice to never go back. We make it our choice to, to be done with that part of our life, to be done with that area of sin, to be done with that temptation and to put the necessary boundaries that keep us from going back there once again. I really believe that the person who has the aim of Christ-likeness, the aim of holiness, that there will be There will be times when temptation comes. There will be times when failure comes. But it's realizing that when those failures come, that there is no failure that's ever fatal or final, but that God in his grace continues and is ready to lead you into a new and greater freedom that he has for you. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me this morning. If everyone would just bow your head and close your eyes with me as we prepare to close I would just ask you, what is, what is it that God is speaking to your heart this morning? I would imagine for many, as I've shared, that I've talked about what we've covered this morning, that there are personal struggles all across this room, personal battles that are raged and fought, some maybe even as, as recent as this morning, just before you walk in the door. But what is God speaking to your heart this morning? What are there, what are there areas that need repentance, Areas that need obedience, areas that need a responding to his grace, to how he's working. I'd love to just pray over you. And then in just a second, I'll open the front as a place to respond. Father, we need you right now. I thank you that your desire is complete freedom within us. That you've paid the price for our freedom and your desire is that In relationship with you that we would begin to walk it out and live in it I pray father right now that you would by your Holy Spirit that you would do your work within us help us even right now to get our focus upon you and to see the freedom and the hope that are offered in you friends as I'm praying and and eyes are closed across this room I just wonder, are there those here this morning that you would look at your life and have talked about the importance of getting your focus on Jesus, and you'd recognize that, first and foremost, that you've never really made Jesus your focus in the first place, that you've never given him control of your heart, control of your life, and that you recognize this morning that you need to make a choice, you need to surrender your life to Christ, and and Place your faith in him. The Bible says we come to a place of repentance, turning from our sin and turning towards Jesus, confessing our sin, acknowledging our sin to God. If you're here this morning and you'd recognize that you need to make that decision, you need to give Jesus control of your life, would you just raise your hand? I wanna see where you're at and pray for you this morning. No one's looking around. Is there anybody here? I see your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being honest you can put your hand down thank you I would encourage that one who's raised your hand to begin to talk to God right as you're standing there begin to invite him to come and bring change in your life begin to confess your need for Jesus friends for others this morning I would imagine that there's things and places and parts of your life that God's just been nudging you by the Holy Spirit and. He just wants to lead you into a place of a greater surrender, places of greater obedience, places of taking the truth of his word and putting it into a- action in our lives. And so I would love to open the front, the altar area. It's just a place to respond this morning that if God's been working in your heart from the things that I've shared in areas and parts of your life, the, o- the area I'd love to open is just the front, inviting you to come, finding a place to pray. And then as the worship team sings, you can begin to come. And I'll dismiss those who need to go in just a minute. But as the worship team sings, friends, you begin to come.